listeners and welcome to the Unis 21 podcast, your digital download of the brightest and best in the trade union movement at home and abroad with me, Simon Sapper. And me, Becky Wright. Listeners, we're talking industrial strategy today. You might think we talk about industrial strategy a lot, but we're doing it with good cause because coming up on this episode, we have Andy Haldane, who in his day job is the chief economist of the Bank of England. So look, I was super glad he didn't want to start talking about economics because as we all know, that is something my brain cannot cope with. Well, he invited us into right into the, the, his lair in the middle of the Bank of England. It was lair, pretty impressive. Which was pretty, pretty, pretty <laughs> impressive. But he was speaking to us as chair of the government's Industrial Strategy Council, charged with overseeing how the industrial strategy is implemented. But before that, Becky, um, you've been on your travels again. You make you? it sound like I go away all the time. I was very nicely invited uh, back to Sweden to talk to the TCO Congress on um, Unions in Transformation and the work we do at Unions 21 and also bring together some colleagues from across Europe to talk about the work they've been doing. And it was a, I'm still digesting it. I'm still trying to think about what I feel like I've learned and what I think is a really good uh, lessons for UK unions. But I have to say, I think it was something like 60, 60 delegates over a day and a half, Not including a hustings at full EU uh, MEPs. Hardly a hotbed of participatory democracy. Well, I mean, I don't know how they do it, really. I know that there's a lot of work that goes on, like all congresses, to get people to a certain point. But what it got me coming away from thinking is, what is democracy within a union in the 21st century and what works and when you're used to broadcasting your voice on like social media platforms mm. and you're used to being the loudest voice in the room or not or whatever what does that look like and also the fact that sometimes the loudest voices aren't always the majority voices but also it occurs to me what 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 level of engagement what what's the process that enables you to get the buy-in from operationally from an operational perspective from all the stakeholders so that you can have a constructive strategic discussion with relative a relatively few number of people well we'll have to find out but i am interested listeners to hear about your experiences in your union of democracy and how decisions are made and what you think works well or if you're part of a group that isn't in a union and uh, you have some kind of democratic structure let me know what you do and how it works. Please email us your experiences of the best of democracy as it applies in your, your organisation. Info at unions21.org.uk. Yeah. But now our special guest for this episode, Andy Haldane. And we started off by asking him exactly what being chair of the Industrial Strategy Council involves. Well, the strategy itself, as you, as you probably know, you know, sets out yeah. the government's plans. There are lots of them, lots of moving parts mm-hmm. to the government's industrial strategy, which I think is good around promoting investment and, and innovation and infrastructure and, and doing so all around the country. So I think a lot of the kind of vital ingredients are there. But what we lack, what we have lacked here in the UK over the years, certainly since the Second World War, is not industrial strategies per se, but the, the ability to implement them, to follow through on them. Mm. What they've lacked is longevity. I think the Institute for Government have counted maybe 20 identifiably industrial strategies that the government, various governments of various hues have put in place since the Second World War, which is telling you, really, that none of them have lasted. Yeah, none of them have stayed. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and in some ways, that is guaranteeing failure. Mm. Because the one thing we know about those sets of policies, you know, improving innovation 
improving investment, improving skills, improving infrastructure, is it takes a long time. You just stick mm. at it. Mm-mm. And that's really where the role of this Industrial Strategy Council comes in. Because it is meant to be helping ensure that governments, successive governments, stick to their knitting. Mm. They do what they've said they were going to do mm. and that we assess the consequences of them doing what they said they're going to do with the hope then that industrial strategy has the same continuity, has the same consistency, has the same comprehensiveness as we see of the other arms of public policy, mm. like monetary policy, mm-hmm. you know, my day job, mm-hmm. and fiscal policy is set by the government. So that, that is really the aim of the council to act as the conscience of government mm. when it comes to structural policies to ensure they are delivered on consistently over time. So it's not about advising, it's about not enforcement but it's uh, but it's being that conscious it's like it you is. said you did exactly so it's mm. it's, it's evaluating mm-hmm. not advising mm-hmm. so we, we we were very clearly not put on earth to come up with whizzy schemes and say uh, oh government try this mm-hmm. our job mm-hmm. is to take what government has said it will do mm-hmm. which is a pretty if you've read the document, you know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's have. lots of stuff in there. <laughs> have you done what you've said? Yeah. Because if you haven't, then that's not a strategy, really. Uh, and has it had an impact? We, mm-hmm. we are evaluators of impact. We are in the game of figuring out what has worked. Mm-hmm. And as importantly, and this is crucial for politicians, of course. what has not. Right, Absolutely. Yeah. And for those things that have, the implication is do some more of that. Mm-hmm. For those things that haven't, no problem. Just do a bit less of it. Yeah. Mm. The industrial strategy document itself was conspicuously lightweight, almost to the point of invisibility, when it came to unions and the importance of collective voice. And yet, if we're talking about strategic planning and delivering a, a sort of high-skill, high-pay... High-productive. High-productive mm-hmm. economy... It's kind of, well, for, for us, obviously, we would say this, wouldn't we? We've I mean, got it's, skin it's, in the game. <laughs> it's, really, it's really problematic, yeah. kind of not, not to be there. Given what you've said about the role uh, of, of the council, what would you say the nature of the involvement of trade unions or those who believe collective voice should be promoted as, as an aid to boosting productivity? What, mm-hmm. How does that look, do you think? So there's absolutely no question in my mind that the worker voice, uh, that trade union involvement is absolutely centre stage, has to be centre stage in the design and execution and success of any industrial strategy. Mm. I don't think I'd be at all alone across the other members of the council or elsewhere across government in saying mm. in saying that. I mean, it, it's with good reason that in terms of the kind of headline objectives of the government's industrial strategy, yes, it's about productivity, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is a terrible word because no one, no one understands what it means, really. But the second part, people do understand, which is earnings power. Yeah. yeah. So for me, this is about productivity as it relates to companies, but as importantly, it's about pay as mm. it relates to workers mm-hmm. in those companies. And mm-hmm. the ingredients for me of a successful industrial strategy is that it speaks not just, it doesn't sound too arid, ethereal, 30,000 feet focused on companies. Mm-hmm. 
it's every bit as much about improving jobs, mm-hmm. both quantity and mm-hmm. quality, uh, and productivity, and ultimately kind of wider world, wider well-being. Mm-hmm. I mean, that for me is why this industrial strategy thing is so important. Yeah. Because it's meant to speak to everyone, not just the leaders of industry. Yeah. It's as, and, and, and that's why, you know, we've got, very importantly, a union representation on the council mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the form of Roy Rickers, a community. Mm-hmm. And Roy, as you probably know, is a kind of fantastic person. And he will, you know, is already making sure that the union's voice, uh, union's collectively voice, is, is, is well heard around the table. Of course, we'll want to, and indeed have started, engaging actively with the TUC and others. Mm-hmm. And they're thinking on this. I mean, I think it's, it's quite important that, just going back to the council, that that isn't seen as being a lobby group. So I think, yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't pick the council members that were, that were chosen by the Secretary of State for Business and the Chancellor, as they should be. But they were very clear, and I think this is absolutely right, that those on the council are chosen not by dint of, dint of representing any one group, but by their expertise. I, I'm there as Andy Haldane as an economist. Mm. Uh, and Roy is there as someone with a deep understanding of the jobs market, of the role of unions mm-hmm. within that, of the skills agenda. You know, Roy's working very actively at, actually on, on, on the skills mm. dimension of our, of, of our work. So I, I'm very confident in the context of the council that we will have adequate uh, union involvement uh, in our discussions. Mm-hmm. And part of that will be reaching out to the unions mm-hmm. to get their view yeah. on various topics. I mean, let's take the, the question of skills, you know, which, which happens to be an area where we as a councillor are doing some deep dive work. As part of that, of course, we'll want to speak to companies of sports, we'll want to speak to workers in companies, and of course, we'll want to speak to unions. Mm. So that's a very long-winded way of saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Union views are welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, more than that, you know, um, you know I, I've made a point, you've seen through my speeches over the years, mm. yeah. of, of wanting the worker perspective, the union's perspective, to be centre stage mm. in how I think about how the economy functions. Yeah. Yeah. And that could be in my day job of setting monetary policy or in my night job of thinking about industrial strategy. I mean, one of the thi- I, I found it really interesting that you said there'd been sort of 20 industrial strategies since the sort of Second World War, and I was kind of racking my brain to think if I could remember... Uh, any of them right. and uh, I've often found that when when people talk about industrial strategy they look towards continental Europe for the examples of how industrial strategy right. is done and and kind of what looks good are there kind of any exemplars to you that as kind of as you sort of see mm. it when you maybe look across the channel or the North Sea and sort of say well you know they seem to have a, 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 a not a better way per se but an easier way of having a longer-term view Mm. on things. Mm. Mm. Well, I think you've hit there, actually, the nail on the head. uh, The key thing, for me, the key criteria for success of something like this is having a plan and sticking with it. Yeah. In some ways... I think that's more important than what the actual detail of the plan is. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we tend to be not desperately good at strategic planning. That's it. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. You know, so on the key contours, I mean, these, these are outside my area of expertise, but if you think something like, you know, energy policy, mm-hmm. it's much more important than you have one and stick with it than what that energy policy actually is. 
I mean, you could go France, uh, almost 100% nuclear, or Germany, almost 0% nuclear. I mean, both of those are better, arguably, than our own energy policy, which has been not to pick anything, really. Yeah, yeah. And you know, uh, I think it'd be invidious to pick a country and say they have really got it sorted out across all fronts. I'm not sure there is such a country. If there is, we're all going to live there, I think. No, <laughs> quite to think we would have long since have borrowed their ideas and be, and, uh, and, and be executing them. But you know, the notion that you want to, on, on these key structural issues, Form a plan and stick to it. Mm. Uh, you know, on certain on certain areas of policy, we can look to other countries and say, actually, they do that better than we do. You mm. know, won't be surprised to either of you too. But you know, the Germans do vocational policy training rather well. Oh, don't get me started on it. I love German vocational. <laughs> Honestly, that's not a joke. I you could know, talk. <laughs> well, I mean, what's the not to like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. And they have this, you know. You here in the UK often speak about we have a sort of tale of two companies. We have these high-flying companies on the high road, productivity and performance-wise, mm-hmm. and equivalently some companies that are, are struggling in productivity and performance terms. Yeah, we have a tale of two workers. Mm. You know, people highly skilled, often working in those high-flying companies, and those whose skills are where we might wish them to be. And often that translates into a tale of two cities. Yeah. In the, you know, category one companies and workers tend to be in certain cities and category two in another. And one way of thinking about, you know, industrial strategy is trying to kind of level the playing field between those mm. two things. Because take, take Germany. Mm. I mean, there is no distinction between the sort of university cognitive skills route yeah. and the technical college vocational route. They are, mm. you know, culturally... And infrastructurally, they're on equal footing. They yeah. haven't got a high road and a low road. They've no. got a dual carriageway yeah, yeah, because each for has training. A, yeah, because each mm. has a place in society. We need both of those things. And they're equally valued by society. Mm. You know, if, if anything, there's more kudos in being on the vocational. Those people do stuff. Yes, my mum would say you've got. <laughs> yes, yeah, my mum would say you need a proper skill. Yeah, yeah. You proper you've job. Come, you've gone to stuff. university, but what can you actually do? Like, Thinkers like, and doers. You want the doers, right? Yeah, yeah. So, if anything, their their um, their cultural t- tilt is it the other way around. But either way, the, the point is, you don't want this imbalance. Yeah. When it comes to say training, now in in, in truth, you know, the, the government, uh, I think there'd be you know, cross party consensus now that our vocational educational system is not where we wish it to be, that mm. FE's taken uh, some big hits over mm. the past mm. few years and that mm. needs turning around. And we're seeing that starting to happen now and I think that would be good in putting these two, these career routes on a more on a more even footing. So I'm not going to pick a country and say we want to be like them, but I think we can look at, at structures or markets yeah. and say mm. we don't want a bit more like that. Mm. Yeah, because, of course, they, I mean, there, there are a whole series of... of things in the basket when one looks at what makes a successful training policy. And I wondered, I, 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 with so much of the UK economy accounted for by small and micro businesses, yeah. I wondered if there are any emerging views about how that sort of skills improvement is going to be delivered mm-hmm. and what structures are necessary for it to be delivered. Yeah. Well, I think part of the answer does, does lie in, um, you know, to the extent that, that you know, higher education is where the money has gone, yeah. and that's seen massive growth, and further education, the money has been subtracted from, and mm-hmm. they've seen, we, we've seen them um, diminish in scale. So some 
re-leveling of that playing field would certainly help. Mm. But a lot of this, I think, could happen in-house by a greater sharing of experience across firms of, of what works and what doesn't work. Mm. So I've been quite taken, as have others, by the work, for example, of uh, Charlie Mayfield's work, former chairman of mm-hmm. uh, John Lewis Partnership. He set up this productivity leadership group several years ago now, and that's now kind of spawned a, a new organization, a new movement called Be the Business. Mm. And what they're essentially about is reaching into those smaller firms, mm. which are basically the mainstay of the economy. They mm-hmm. employ most people in yep. this country. And they're a mechanism for sharing of, of best practice and good practice among those networks of firms. Mm. And that could be mentoring, it could be training, it could be convening groups, it could be, you know, in, in, in Germany, to go back to your favourite example, <laughs> Becky, there's a, there's a structured inf- an infrastructure yeah. that enables technical expertise to be shared mm. across firms, mm. um, the Steinbeis system. And you might think about whether you know, be the business is a fledgling form of that. Because mm-hmm. this need not be sending people off to university or college for several mm-hmm. years. Yeah, yeah. It yep. can be on the job, and it could be no more and no less than the sharing of good practice about mm. what has worked in my business. Mm. I'm always struck when I go around the country, and I'm, I'm spending a lot of my time around the country talking to businesses and visiting businesses about how you can travel really small distances geographically and see startling differences mm. in business practice. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. I yeah, often ask myself the question, yeah, I don't know, I'll, I'll go, to a, go, to a, go to a region, I'll go to the southwest, uh, and I'll visit a cider-making company. There's a real example, as it turns out. And they're terrific. They're performing really well. They've invested in robots. They haven't sacked their workers. They've retrained their workers mm. from, from driving forklift trucks to operating robots. They are high performing, they are high productivity, they are high paying, they have a highly skilled, self-trained workforce. They're doing fantastically. Mm. I travel no more than a few miles to a company that's in the same part of the country, in a similar sort of sector, and it's the direct opposite of that. Mm. They are still with a, they haven't really invested in, in, in machines, much less robots, their workforce haven't been reskilled. They are performing moderately. Their productivity isn't picking up. They are paying relatively poorly. I just think to myself, why can't you, company one yeah. speak mm. a bit more to company two? <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, they're the close enough yeah, yeah. to have that conversation. So just that, you know, without setting up an elaborate yeah. infrastructure... I think just uh, as Be The Business are doing, a a greater sharing of best and good practice, I think, could Mm. really help. And I I mean, I kind of think that's part of that is getting through the idea of competition, isn't it? People not wanting to share because they see others as the competition, as opposed to in this particular area, in this particular sector, we want to be the best and we need to be the best and if we can get everybody up we all do very well and you mentioned robots uh, Andy so I thought it would be wrong of me not to say the robots are coming will be taken over by our overlords if so welcome our uh, technological (laughs) overlords but I mean this is the kind of is this also another impetus for the strategy council and kind of where we need to be right now because there are other countries that are 
that are investing that have industrial strategy, which takes in consideration the robotization of work, of AI, and all of that area, and, and how they are adapting as a country. And we're kind of, you know, as we go through these changes, which everybody wants to talk about because it's really fashionable, is this part of the reason why we need to really invest in the idea of industrial strategy and have the council to do its job? I think, uh, I think you're right. I think even if we weren't on the sort of cusp of a fourth industrial revolution with AI and robots and mm. all the rest of it, you still want one. Mm. It's been a gap that we haven't had one, that has mm-hmm. stuck, you know, uh, that has arguably may well have cost us dear. I mean, there's a reason, I think, why you know, levels of productivity in this country are, I don't know, 10, 15, 20, maybe 25% the levels in France and Germany. Mm. That's not all just down to not having industrial strategy, but I think it's played a part in that. Mm. So strategy beats no strategy, I'd mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. But particularly so if others have got one that are looking to harness the benefits yeah. of this cresting wave of yeah. automation mm. and AI mm. and robots and all the rest of it. I mean, the truth is, whisper it quietly, actually whisper it far too quietly in this country. We do certain things in this country fantastically well. I mean, we don't like mm. to brag about it, but actually we, are, we have some fantastic companies and some fantastically skilled workers mm. in those companies where we are genuinely, we genuinely kind of rule the waves on, 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 in some areas. Actually, AI yeah. is one of them, as it yeah, turns out. The irony, maybe. We do that very well. <laughs> and, and you could list, you know, our universities are world-leading mm. and they're increasingly spawning high-growth, high-value, high-skilled companies and jobs. And, and terrific that they are. We need to find a way of sprinkling more of that fairy dust across the whole of industry, mm-hmm. the whole of the workforce, and the whole of the country. Do you think that one way of doing that might be, he said in a leading sort of yeah. way, <laughs> sort of wage-led increases in productivity? You could make the argument that actually investment decisions are predicated on what is cheapest rather than what will give greatest return and actually labour is much cheaper than plant and more flexible in in, Mm. in many ways and actually if there was a higher pay floor there would be a different set of equations that were going through the minds of decision decision makers it wouldn't I'm not saying it would be a panacea but it has a contribution to make potentially yeah well here's I mean I would say this I may not be able to answer your question fully, but um, something that I think definitely goes in the right direction. So another way of framing your question would be, you know, do, do you need productivity before you get pay rises, or can mm-hmm. you use pay rises as, as a, as a quantum of productivity? Yeah, that's a fair approximation. I suspect, <laughs> you know, I suspect that, that both channels might operate. I mean, certainly it's the case that, you know, lasting increases in productivity definitely spawn pay rises. You know, I know that because... That's what pays for pay rises, basically. Mm. So, uh, I mean, no doubt that you know one of the, the the key cornerstones of the industrial strategy, which is to raise levels of productivity, which have been flatlining for a decade, mm. is crucial in getting of in getting pay up. Or put differently, the reason we've had you know real pay flat for a decade is because we've had productivity flat for a decade. So I've got to get mm. productivity up to help yeah. pay for those pay rises. So, you know, I'm four square behind the idea that, that good things will flow to workers and their pay packets and their jobs if we can do something to tackle what's called our productivity puzzle. The proposition you put was that as, as a way of getting productivity up, might we start with pay rises 
And one mechanism there might be, well, might that encourage a greater degree of investment mm. Mm. Uh, in productivity enhancing capability of various types, be it the kind of skills of workers or you know, machines to, to make workers more productive. And that's, that's certainly possible. I'm not going to get into the territory of kind of what the right minimum level no, of no, I'm, I'm not inviting you to is. Go there, no. For reasons of my own of, job preservation, yeah. but you know. <laughs> also, I was like a bit like, good, because I probably will lose the track at some point. <laughs> but we need to, um, th- th- this pay productivity nexus, I can quite believe you know, the channels can, can run in, 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 a, in a variety of ways. I, I think, I hope as a council, we're, we're kind of open-minded at the best way of achieving the combination of both being higher. Now, a lot of our unions will be used to bodies such as the uh, Low Pay Commission, who kind of go out and they do, as you're sort of saying, go visit people, talk to them about what's going on, and they produce recommendations and a report. You said that one of the things that the Industrial Strategy Council will be doing is kind of holding governments to account in the nicest possible way, of course. What's your timeline then for doing that kind of work? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, if we're to do that... We've got to operate independently. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, I've got quite a lot of personal experience of acting independently of government. I mean, that's what the Bank of England is for a living. So I know what that feels like. And, and sometimes, as, as there should be, there's a degree of grit in the oyster. There needs to yeah. be. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to give people tough messages sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, that this has worked is a good news story. But occasionally it's going to be this hasn't worked and yeah. that's a less good news story mm-hmm. and absolutely as a council we need to be uh, rigorous and independent there's, there's no point in being a cheerleader government doesn't need, doesn't need a cheerleader it needs a arm's length evaluator and that's what we're that's what we're going to be in terms of how we do that mm. all that we do will be made public and transparent that's one of the mechanisms through which we, we keep government on the path of righteousness we will issue an annual report the right. first of those will probably be at the end of this year right. mm-hmm. we will intersperse that though that will be our kind of comprehensive, once a year, state of the nation yep. type piece. Not to pick it up too much. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, with uh, a big, massive yeah, television. Regretting that line now. <laughs> the, um, but we'll intersperse it with kind of more set piece, deeper dives on, on particular issues. So oh, let me give an example. You know, one element of the, of the government strategy that, that's made quite a bit of headway actually the past few years is, is writing these so-called sector deals, which is a sort of partnership between government and an industry mm. to stimulate investment. We've got, what, 10 of those sector deals now. We'll do a piece of work that looks at those. Mm. What sectors have been covered? As importantly, what sectors have not been covered? Yeah, I was going to yeah, say, it's yeah. not just what's been covered, isn't it? And we've talked to an awful no. lot of people that have sort of gone, we would quite like quite this like sector. Like yeah. Health and social care. Well, we will take a look at, you know, who's been in, who hasn't been in so far, the criteria that were used for bring yeah. this about yep. uh, are some industries some sectors more amenable to these sorts of things than others mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to that question and then the obvious uh, other questions are you know, what, what benefits have they brought and we'll do so you know rigorously and, and, and quantitatively you know um, I'm a nerdy sort of bloke so we'll do something <laughs> oh, you know, suitably nerdy and then we'll, we'll put that in play um, you know to, to government and publicly as a contribution towards the debate mm. as a way of making this industrial strategy as effective as possible we're not mm. there to criticize we're there to try and improve yeah. what's yeah. being done that's an important difference that's crucial otherwise what's the point you know we're mm. not we're not the press throwing stones at politicians we're there to improve policy 
And yeah, I'm a great believer, I mean, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I'm a great believer in the power of evidence mm-hmm. and analysis. Uh, absolutely. I mean, there's a, you could say that there's a, there's a bit of a dearth of evidence-based policy making at some point in some places. Hashtag fake news. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. And especially in this area, I mean, it, it's tough to evaluate because these things, policies take time to have an impact. Yeah. So in a way, you know, the day job, monetary policy is a bit easier because the impact shows up fairly quickly. Whereas if you're rebuilding infrastructure or a skills agenda or even creating a sector deal, it may be years before you reach yeah, yeah. the full fruits. Yeah, you've got to have a strong level of, level of buying in order to sustain the project through the fact that you don't get an immediate return. That's it. Yeah. That's exactly it. That's what makes it hard, of course. And that's why we've had 20 strategies, because yeah, yeah. people are saying, well, you've done it, nothing's happened. Yeah. Well, of well, course nothing's happened. It's only been <laughs> half an hour, yeah. <laughs> yeah. relatively speaking. Yeah. Yeah, we no, have that's to, true. And we that's have exactly to change right. that kind of political culture I think almost or kind of general culture of sort of basically embedding it because I think that's the thing that that other countries have a bit more than us is that that culture of of embedding the industrial strategy and kind of seeing it through and that will be the challenge won't it that'll definitely be the the challenge that's a key one and another key one I think speaks precisely to where you started is that the industrial strategy is meant to be for everyone it's not just about making companies more efficient mm. it's about better work for a greater number of people with higher levels of pay higher levels of satisfaction and higher levels of skills i mean you've i think you've had matthew taylor on your we uh, have on indeed, the show yeah. so matthew's a member of the uh, council obviously kind of fantastic person i mean one strand of our work is going to look at uh, not just the quantity of work but the quality of it you know picking yeah. up yep. his review yeah so we've got research going on that which matthew is helping lead which is asking the question, you know, do those quality of work metrics uh, map into higher productivity in the workplace? Mm. And if so, those are just the sort of things that we should be monitoring as a council, as a metric for success of the strategy. I mean, it's a question of of defining the metric, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of literature that seeks to demonstrate the correlation between a sense of worker disempowerment and low levels of productivity. But it's, I mean, if, if one's going to hang one's hat on a particular yeah. measure, it's got to be. It's good to choose with great, great care. No, I completely agree. And and, and like I say, you know, as 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 we're all nerds here today, we'll we'll do our uh, our best to to get the causality straight on this. And there's a it's a generally open question. You know, this good work's been done on a very important issue about implications of a change, the changing world of work, changing quality mm. of work. And how it bears upon issues of productivity and pay, I think, is a let's try and bottom that as best we can. And is that is that where Matthew? I mean, there's a uh, a, a large chunk of Matthew Taylor's review that he submitted to the Prime Minister, what getting off two years ago mm. now, about about improving informational consultation with employees' standards, and he's he's returned to that theme mm. in some papers he's published. Yeah. He's published recently. Is- is it in that part of the, the council's work that those views are going to be discussed and, and, and thrashed out? So there's it, it's certainly that set of issues, or the, the, those dimensions of quality of work, uh, and a few more befo- besides. So it is yes. speaking yeah. issues of employee engagement mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and, yeah. Uh, and standards and all that. Mm-hmm. So the, the follow-up piece of work he did on, on kind of metrics of, of, of quality of work, we're sort of picking up that, or he, under the auspices of the council, we're picking that up and asking the question, um, what does that buy you? I mean, those things are worth doing anyway, yeah, yeah. right? But the question is, did it buy you something on top of that mm. in terms of 
uh, improve performance in the uh, in the workplace. I mean, in some ways, that would be the sort of cherry on the top, really. Yes. Well, and as we go to the cherry on top. Yes. <laughs> that feels like a good time to stop. I'm just, this is always me. Let's finish on the positives, everyone, and let's, let's finish, kind finish, of carry finish on. Finish with cake. Finish with, yeah, cake. really importantly, let's finish with cake. Andy, thank you so much for, for spending time and, and, and giving such clear and, and, and sort of candid answers to our, to our probing questions. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> Becky, Sam, and thank you. Great to meet you both. Well, wasn't that interesting? That was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, I think, I think there's a real... There's a challenge. I thought it was very challenging because, because actually the industrial strategy is a flawed benchmark, isn't it? It doesn't talk about collective voice. It doesn't talk about unions. Mm. And yet, if the, you know, yet we've got Andy who's in charge of the industrial strategy council saying, absolutely, I need to talk about collective voice. Absolutely, unions are part of the solution. You can't have a good solution without effective collective voice. And I think I think that's positive. I mean, I think. Yeah. I mean, look. I think that he's the chair of the council, which is about holding the government to account over the industrial strategy would I like them to have a bit more of a ability to advise and influence that strategy yeah I think I would I think there is a lot to be said for maybe also it not being so like implementation of strategy not being so entrenched by the government of the day saying that the thing that really really struck me was we've had apparently 20 industrial strategy documents and none of them have stuck so i think we need to get into the habit of a having an industrial strategy and talking about it and knowing what that should look like and then getting it implemented and if the council is the first step to that then let's see how that works would i like more unions on the council yes i would would i like it to be a little bit more like the lpc probably i don't know haven't worked this one out (laughs) looking at our resident commissioner i don't know right but i thought it was really good that he he was very open with us as much as he could be i think you know we have to be mindful of his position but you know he chatted with us before he chatted with us afterwards and he definitely he felt to me like he was keen to hear from unions so i would say to unions get get your foot in the door there uh, absolutely and i mean he's got form hasn't he because he you know he gave that speech at the acas conference last year which was which was i really got unions i, I really unions. yeah i really liked it and i was like oh this is like the first economics lecture slash speech <laughs> i actually understand so and so i would say the glass is the glass is half full but probably not much more than half full on this one <laughs> Well, listeners, that's it for this edition of the podcast. It's been our pleasure to have you with us for the last half hour or so. We hope you've enjoyed what you hear. If you have and you've got suggestions about what you'd like to hear in the future... Please tell us. Tell us info at unions21.org.uk. We'd love you to join the discussion. You can tweet us at unions21. And if you are listening to this, that means you're listening to it on a podcast platform. Oh, yes. Well, we hope you are. And if you are, please rate us and help us to beat the algorithms. And share widely. But anyway. Until the next podcast. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. The Unions 21 podcast was presented by Becky Wright and Simon Sapper. It was a Makes You Think production.